All right, good morning, church preschoolers. Uh, those going to the preschool class, you are dismissed. We will see you later. Seemed clear from uh, Pastor Kevin's opening announcements that at our next family meeting, we'll be taking a vote to officially make him pastor of women's ministries. And <laughs> so you'll want to be here if you want to speak into that at all. But go ahead, church, open up to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, as we're continuing our series preaching through the book of Romans, and we are in Romans chapter 9, a a chapter that can be at times difficult to receive, difficult even to, to read, some hard things in here, and yet some really good and glorious things, things that we need. One of my favorite moments in the Chronicles of Narnia, written by C.S. Lewis, is when Susan and Lucy are asking Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about Aslan. And Mr. Beaver had told them the old Narnian rhyme, which went like this, Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. You'll understand when you see him, Mr. Beaver says. Lucy then asks, is is he a man? Aslan, a man? Certainly not. He is the king. He is the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? Mrs. Beaver then jumps in. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. And he's the king, I tell you. And church, in these verses that we're going to be looking at this morning, I believe the most faithful approach to what God's word says here is not to try to teach these words in a way that would make us more comfortable with God. I don't believe I can be faithful to this text and make him seem more domesticated to you or like he's actually not so different from us or that he's tamer or safer than this passage maybe implies that he is. No, church, the truth that is revealed to us here is so vitally important for us because it's in these verses, when we receive them by faith, that these verses will serve to both humble us and fill us with great hope. That's what we're going to see this morning. As we receive this by faith, this is going to serve to humble us and fill us with great hope as we learn that God is not exactly like us. He is the creator. We are the creation. And so many things get out of whack in life or in our doctrine and theology when we start to forget that, that differentiation. Church, we did not invent him, and therefore we cannot put him in these nice little neat parameters that always make perfect sense to us and we're always comfortable with. He is not a part of creation like we are. He is not necessarily safe, but, oh, church, we'll see this morning that he is good. 
He is good. And he is good, for he has chosen to make known the riches of his glory to vessels of mercy, his people. We are in our third sermon in this Romans 9 through 11 section of Romans, which we've titled Righteousness Out to All People. And I've titled it that because it's in these chapters that we learn how God is going to get his righteousness out to all people and how we know that this will, in fact, be accomplished. I mean, what hope is there that righteousness will get out to all people? We do have hope, church. We're going to see. You'll remember that in Romans 8, we receive some glorious promises from God. Romans 8, just beautiful chapter, glorious promises. Some of those are that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That God works all things together for the good of those who love him. That nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But the question that could be asked by the Roman church upon hearing Romans 8 is, hey, Paul, those are some great promises God is making to believers and to the church, but didn't he make some great promises to Israel? And a lot of them are not here with us. Some of them are, but, not, but most of them are not at this point. Paul, has God's word failed? And two weeks ago, we looked at the, that. Has God's word failed? We saw Paul answer that question with a absolutely not. God's word wins. And he explained that by teaching us that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. God never made these promises to every single ethnic descendant of Israel. God has always had a chosen people to set a fatherly, redeeming, covenantal love upon, a steadfast love upon. And last week, we started talking about, is God right to do this? Is God right to, to govern his creation in that way? Is he right to do this? And we saw first that God does not owe us mercy. We saw last week that God's mercy is free and without any external constraints. We saw that God could be glorified in both his display of mercy and judgment. But then we also saw that it is God's mercy. Is, that is what gushes from his heart. We learned that mercy is his normal work and judgment is his Strange work, as the Puritans used to say. But now the question must be asked, and Paul is anticipating that we would ask it. He says, does God have the right to do this? It's essentially what he's asking this morning that we're addressing. It's the question we're addressing right now is, does God have the right to do this? If God's will is freer than ours, then how does he still find fault with us for who can resist his will? And this morning we will be both humbled and filled with great hope as God's word reveals to us God's authority and God's rights. Your, your, your heart might want to fight for more human rights this morning. And listen, there's a time and a place to talk about our human dignity and our human rights. But this morning we come to sit under the word that lays out to us God's rights and God's authority. And it's in receiving and enjoying God's authority that we will be humbled and we will be filled with great hope. And I'll guide you through these verses by asking three questions. Who are you? Who is he? And who are we? Okay? That's the three questions I'll be asking throughout this morning. Who are you? Who is he? And then who are we? Let's pray and then we'll get into the word. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, you are a God who has revealed 
yourself to us. You're a God who wants to be known. You're a God who has made himself known, Lord, through the creation and through, through the Lord Jesus and through your, your written word and through your people. And so, God, we ask that as we come to your word, that your word would do a great work on us. Father, we don't always know what to do with your word, but your word knows what to do with us. And so help me just trust that today. Help us trust that today. Make much of yourself. Do the work you want to do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, first question, who are you? Romans 9, verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Now let's clarify here what what Paul is addressing when he says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Because Paul is not saying that we can't ask questions of God or questions of one another. That's not what Paul is is going after here. And so at the start of Romans 9, I I did make an open invitation for anyone who would want to reach out and talk through some of these things in Romans 9, and and, and people who had questions know that you you can always meet with me, you can always send me questions. As as one of your pastors, I want to to know what you're thinking, I love that you're engaging with the Word, We'll, we'll talk through these things together, we'll wrestle through these things together, we'll ask questions of one another and learn from one another, and it'll It'll be great, and, and multiple people have, have taken me up on that, and it's, it's been beautiful. And everyone who has reached out has been very gracious and patient and loving, and we've started to talk through some of these things and walk through some of these things together. And really, it's been an encouragement to me to see where we are at as a church, to see the health of our church come to light, um, not, not in things that we always, always agree on, but man, where's the health of the church when you disagree on some things, Right? When you get to some of the secondary, tertiary doctrines, when you've, when you've done life with one another long enough that you have to forgive one another and work through things together with one another. I mean, those are the marks of a healthy church. And so as we're approaching our, our five-year birthday, and I saw just in, you know, the way the sermon was laying out that we were going to be in Romans 9 all the way leading up to our five-year birthday. And in church planting world, the five-year number is something they're always putting out to you because most churches don't make it to the five-year mark. Most church plants don't, don't make it to the five-year mark. And so I, I went to the elders saying like, hey, the fact that we're preaching through Romans 9 leading up to this five-year mark that most, teach, most churches don't make it to, do you feel like we're testing God right now? <laughs> And they said, no, like, get over here. No one, no. And, and, I, and I believe we are at a point in the season of our church and in the health of our church that we can, we can handle some of these things. We can, we can work through disagreements together. We can forgive one another. We can grow together. We can ask questions of one another. And so I've been very encouraged just about where we are at as, our, as a church in our maturity and in our health. So it's been a very good thing. So I want to clarify that, that, that I'm not using this to try to address at all any recent questions that have come to me. You, you got to know this. You just got to take, believe me, please. Like, I, I'm, not, I'm not addressing anyone in here in particular. 
or anything that has happened these last few weeks because all the questions that have come to me have been good, they've been loving, they've been gracious, and you need to be able to ask questions of your pastors. This is a, we want you to ask questions, okay? Paul's not saying we can't ask questions of one another or that we can't ask questions of, even of God. But this is what he is saying, okay? Now that I've hopefully clarified that, and you all know I love you. This is, this is not directly related to anyone I've met with this week or anyone I'm meeting with next week, okay? We all do, do need to hear what he is saying, though, because we all, including me, need to stop and consider some of these things Paul is addressing. What he is addressing is he, ad- he is addressing a prideful heart who wants to quarrel with God over the way God has chosen to govern his creation. That's what he's getting at when he says, who are you? It's a question that serves to put us all in our place. Paul is teaching us here that God is the creator and we are the creation. And so there's, there's nothing wrong with respect, respectfully asking honest questions of God and others and about him and his word. But listen, God knows when our questions are questions and when our questions are quarrels. And I'm guessing if you have kids, you know the difference, don't you, when your kids ask questions. You tell your kids something and they answer back with a question. And it's not so much the words in their question. It's the tone or the posture of the heart that seeps out into the question that makes it clear to the parent if this is a genuine question or if it is a quarrel. My mom likes to to share the story of of her, you know, lovingly and patiently teaching me that that uh, she was to be an authority figure over me, and me asking the question, well, who put you in charge? And it wasn't said in a way of like, mother, I'm trying to understand how God has set up his governance of the world and the family. Help me know who put you in this position, right? No, you knew the It wasn't an honest question. It wasn't a genuine, help me understand this. It was a prideful quarrel of, I don't like that. And I'm going to fight against it. That's what Paul's speaking into you this morning. And listen, if you as a finite human being and a finite parent can tell the difference between a humble question and a prideful quarrel, God most certainly can. And so this is for all of us. In every aspect of our life, we must remember our place in God's universe. He is the creator. We are the creation. Don't be like Lucy and Susan and think that he is just like us. And therefore, you can quarrel with him and pridefully accuse him and and question him like you can a fellow human being. We need to all remember our place and be humbled by him. We are not the creator. We cannot see all that he can see. He has revealed to us all we need to know, but certainly not all that there is to know. You've got like a fraction of a percent of the knowledge he has. And yet you, like Psalm 50 verse 19, 
says you, you will sometimes give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. Psalm 50, verse 19, we'll have, uh, I think we'll have this up on the screen. It says then in verse 20, you sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Who are you? We, we all need God's word to humble us and put us in our place at times, don't we? Any time I'm needing God to put me in my place, I go to Job chapter 38. So why don't you turn with me? It would be good for us to get familiar finding Job 38 in our Bibles, just before the book of Psalms. In your Old Testament, you're going to flip to the left, Job 38. Job goes through a lot of suffering. As most of you know, he doesn't understand why necessarily he can't see what God sees. And he's got questions for God. Have you ever been there? We've, we've got questions for God sometimes, don't we? Not like, Father, we humbly come before you with genuine questions, but like, shake our fist at God. When I see God, I've got some questions for him. And get this, instead of God explaining everything to Job and helping him appreciate maybe this category of a suffering servant and and how Job's life is ultimately going to be pointing forward towards Christ, who's going to be the ultimate righteous suffering servant that's coming. I mean, God could have tried to explain typology to him a little bit, like, hey, man, you're pointing to something better that's coming, right? He could have have maybe explained how Job's life and situation was going to be Bible studies and classes and, and Uh, that was going to benefit billions of people who are suffering themselves as they look at the example of Job, and it was going to be such a great comfort to to the rest of the world. Like He could have explained those things to Job of all these good things that were coming, but that's not what God does. What God does is he absolutely puts Job and every human being in their place. And I won't read it all to you, but let's just get a a taste of it here. In Job 38, verse 1, Then the Lord answered to Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no further and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Skip down to verse 34. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds like a flood, and that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom, who has put wisdom in the inward parts or even given understanding to the mind? Skip down to 39 verse 1. 
Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? That's, that's for whatever reason, the Lord has implanted that one in my mind when I start to question and think about what God is doing, why he's doing it, how he's doing it. He, he brings to me the image of the mountain goats. Man, you don't even know what's going on with the mountain goats right now. Trying to tell me how to do my job? What's going on with the mountain goats right now? We don't know. And we're going to question God's right to govern his creation? The fact that your mind can even think and reason and try to understand? Who made your mind? Who put it in your head? Who, who's allowing all the neurons, neurons and everything to, and the synapses to, to fire and go right now? Skip down to Job 40, verse 1. And the Lord said to Job, shall a, fault fighter, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Now this is where he gets to, skip down to Job 42, verse 2. This is where he gets, after he has just been humbled, and he now understands his place in creation. And this is a common I'm going to show you a couple of examples of this. This is, this is what humanity says once they've been humbled and they understand their place in creation. Job 42, verse 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Oh, church, that is the response of a humbled person. And it's not a unique situation. It's the same response of King Nebuchadnezzar after he'd been humbled in Daniel, Daniel 4. You can go read about Nebuchadnezzar and how God humbled him and drove him out to live amongst the beasts. And after he's been humbled, this is what Nebuchadnezzar proclaims in Daniel 4.35. He says, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Man, that's a humbled king right there. So Paul here in Romans 9, he's not addressing honest questions of God and pastors and one another. But when pride rises up in our hearts, he's instructing us that we should not try to quarrel with God and accuse him of not having the right to govern his universe in his way. When that pride rises up, we need to be asked the question, who are you, O oh man? You are the creation. He is the creator. No purpose of his can be thwarted. Even when Pharaoh resisted his revealed will, he was accomplishing his sovereign will. God does all according to his will amongst the host of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And Paul's trying to help us see who we are as well as who God is. And he does this then with a, a potter and clay illustration. Now, no illustration uh, completely or comprehensibly teaches what our relationship is like with God, okay? But he uses this illustration 
um, not in a way to teach us that we are exactly like clay, but he's using this illustration to address God's authority, God's rights. Does God have the right to choose to show mercy to some and not to others? Does the creator have the authority to mold, work, and sculpt his creation? Now, we can disagree on how he does that, but we have to all agree that he has the right to do it. Does he have that authority or right? And that leads us to this second question of who is he? Who is he? Look back at Romans 9, verse 21. He says, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his mercy and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Who is he? He is God, he's the creator. Has the potter no right over the clay? Now that word right, it's in the original Greek, it's the word exousia, that word meaning authority, right? That was confusing. I just said right again, but you see what I'm saying? That word right, it's a word that means authority. It's the same word that Jesus uses in the Great Commission when he says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's saying all rights in heaven and on earth have been given to me. The reason that we can therefore go and make disciples of the nations is because Jesus has all authority. If the success of the mission depended upon human will and exertion, it would not be a hopeful mission. But thanks be to God that we are called to therefore go. Jesus has the authority God has the right over his creation, just like a potter has over the clay. Therefore, go. And so let's think about this this potter and clay uh, illustration. Have you, you guys made pottery before? You can think about times that you made made pottery. I mean, I know we have professionals in here, but a lot of us amateurs, we've tried this before, okay? And typically what you do, at least when I've made pottery, is you first decide what you're going to make. You say, oh, you know, am I going to make a a bowl or am I going to make a mug or am I going to make, you know. Now, everything I've made in pottery ultimately ends up becoming a paperweight, okay? So that's where my pottery skills will end up. But typically for those that are making pottery, you decide what you're going to make first and then you go about making it. And you as the potter, you have the authority and the right to form the clay how you wanted to form it. There's not a time where the clay starts revolting against you. So you, as the creator, you you decide what you're going to make, and then you start making it. But then, again, every every illustration, it's not a, a comprehensive approach to our relationship with the Lord. But as we think about God's right as the creator, God's authority is the potter, we do get hit with then this really tough question that's 
hard for us to get our minds around this question of does God really make some of us for honorable use and some for dishonorable use? Does he really prepare some of us for destruction and some for mercy? And does he equally delight in both things? And does he dispense both things in the exact same way? And this is where we need to see here what Paul is teaching us. And what he's ultimately teaching us is, is how someone once put it. I couldn't find who, who quoted this, uh, but it, it wasn't original to me. They said that God's wrath, what we see here in this, this passage is God's wrath being put into the service of his mercy. And we'll explain that as we go. But here we see God's wrath being put into the service of his mercy. Here we see the the strange work of God's wrath and power as he is ultimately pouring those things out on some. He's doing it in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. And he's not dispensing and preparing vessels for wrath in the exact same way that he's preparing vessels for mercy. So in verse 22, in the Greek, that word prepared, prepared for destruction, that verb prepared, it's written in the the passive voice. Then in verse 23, when speaking of those being prepared for mercy, that verb prepared is written in the active voice. Now what that means, it's, 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 consistent with what we've been seeing all throughout Romans, that God has chosen some to actively pursue and pour out mercy and grace upon, while others he has given them over to their sinful desires. Just like with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart that we talked about last week. God was the agent. God's word said that he hardened Pharaoh's heart. But how did he do that? He didn't create evil in the heart of Pharaoh, for God is not the author of evil. No, the human heart, because of the presence of sin, is already hard. All God did was passively remove any restraining mercy that was on Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh's heart did what Pharaoh's heart wanted to do. Now, I know that's a lot to to process and think through. John Stott has a quote here that I want to share with you on the screen, and I think he explains this in a, in a, a better way than I could. So here are his words. He says, If therefore God hardens some, he is not being unjust, for that is what their sin deserves. If, on the other hand, he has compassion on some, he's not being unjust, for he is dealing with them in mercy. The wonder is not that some are saved and others not, but that anybody is saved at all. For we deserve nothing at God's hand but judgment. If we receive what we deserve, which is judgment, or if we receive what we do not deserve, which is mercy, in neither case is God unjust. And here's his his closing statement that I think we can all agree on. If therefore anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. But if anybody is saved, the credit is God's. And so I do believe, yes, it says he, he prepared some for destruction and some for mercy, but he's not preparing them in the exact same way. 
for some, God is simply giving them over to what their sinful desires want. It's not his normal work. It's not what he delights to do. But even in those circumstances, we see him pour out some degree of mercy and patience and love towards all. I mean, look at how it says that he has endured with much patience vessels of wrath. Like, you need to know this about God. He's not on the edge of his seat ready to strike with wrath and judgment. It says he has endured with much patience. I mean, if you want a picture of God enduring with much patience, and especially of his enduring with his enemies and those that are against him, I, I, I picture the scene of Jesus washing Judas's feet. He has endured with much patience, even his enemies. I mean, if if you're struggling to patiently endure with some people, just think for a moment about Jesus washing Judas' feet. Or what about this? When God promises Abraham the promised land, but doesn't say he's going to give it to him right away, he says in Genesis 15, 16, in Genesis 15, 16, He says that Abraham's family is going to come back here in the fourth generation. Why? Why not right away? He says in Genesis 15, 16, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God's still going to patiently endure with the Amorites. He knows their hearts. He knows where this is going. But he's still going to be patient with them. Church, our God is so patient with his people and with his enemies. And he's way more patient than we are. God is slow to anger. He's not on the edge of his seat wanting to strike down all who oppose him. He's patient. He's good. He's slow to anger. But he's not a pushover. And he's not indifferent towards sin. And we wouldn't want them to be indifferent towards sin. And yes, church, sadly, there are some in this world who are being prepared for destruction, who are being given over to their sinful desires. And this should absolutely break our hearts. We see that it breaks Paul's. We saw at the start of, uh, start of chapter 9, don't we, didn't we see his, his heart for those that aren't, that aren't following Christ? We're going to see this then next week at the start of chapter 10. This is breaking Paul's heart. He's praying for them. He's, he's pleading for those that don't know Christ. But God has been patient with them. He's showing them some degree of mercy and love every day with every sunrise, with every rain, with every good meal. But for those who continue in their shaking of their fist towards God, for those who think that when they get in God's presence, he's going to have to answer their questions, they are in for a horrific realization when they find themselves in the presence of a holy God. But here in these verses, we see that the ultimate purpose of God is not to be cruel, And not even to be just, even though he is. 
But his ultimate purpose in desiring to display his wrath and his power is to make the riches of his glory more known to vessels of mercy. His people are vessels of mercy. Church, we are vessels of mercy. And would we really understand how glorious his mercy was if we, he didn't also reveal his wrath and his holiness and his power? This is like when a jeweler wants to display a gorgeous diamond. They don't put it on a backdrop that the diamond will blend in with. No, they set it on a black cloth or a black piece of felt. And then the diamond sparkles. And you see just how glorious and wonderful this jewel really is. And church, in a similar way, God's wrath has been put into the service of his mercy so that vessels of mercy would come to see just how glorious a treasure his mercy really is. It's a treasure, church. Do you see his mercy as a treasure? Or do you see it as your wage for living a pretty good life? Do you see it as something he's given to you because you made the right decisions in life and other people didn't? Or do you see it as a gift from the sovereign king that has chosen to give you his treasure? He's chosen to give you himself. On the basis of what? We've learned in Romans 9, not because of anything you had done or deserved, not because of your will or exertion, but only because of God who shows mercy. And then once you start to see this treasure, once you start to see this this precious jewel of God's mercy, can you not then look back over your whole life and see how God was preparing you to come and receive and fully treasure and adore his mercy? We've all had different circumstances that have led us to this place, this Sunday morning, this text, this sermon, to treasure God's mercy. God all along the way has been preparing you to enjoy and treasure his mercy. And now here it is, it's upon you. Can you not praise God for all the ways he's prepared this for you? Vessels of mercy, see what a gift you've been given been given to you by God, who is not a man, who is not just like us, who is not safe. Oh, but he is good. He is good. Who are you? Who is he? Now, who who are we? All right, let's talk about who are these vessels of mercy? Are we talking about Israel? Are we talking about ethnic Israel, the Jews? Who are we talking about, Paul? Who are, who are the vessels of mercy? Look with the, uh, me back at Romans 9, verse 24. Who are these vessels of mercy? 24. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And the Gentiles said, Amen. Verse 25, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not my beloved, I will call my beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. 
And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So here's the amazing thing, church. You could wrongly get to this point and have the assumption that vessels of mercy that the Paul is talking about are just the Israelites, or maybe they're just the descendants of Jacob or something like that. But he says in verse 24, no, these vessels of mercy have been called out. They've been called out not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And then he quotes Hosea and applies it to the Gentiles. And then he quotes Isaiah and applies it to the Jews. You see how he's addressing both Jew and Gentile here. Now, Hosea was originally written to the northern tribe of Israel before they fell to Assyria. And so you could think maybe Paul is taking this out of context or not understanding the original audience, but he knows what he's doing, and I'll, I'll explain. But in this story with Hosea, God tells Hosea to marry an adulterous woman. I mean, you want to talk about God not fitting into our safe little comfortable boxes we try to put him in. God tells Hosea to marry an adulterous woman, and it's going to be for a sermon illustration. That's what he's, that's what he's doing here. And they have children. He's like, you're going to marry her. She's going to be unfaithful. You're going to have children. God tells Hosea to name them, tells the first one to be named a name which means God will sow. The second born is, is to be named a name that means no mercy. And the third is to be named a name, not my people. God will sow, no mercy, not my people. Hosea's wife then goes off. She's unfaithful to him. She ends up on the slave market. God tells Hosea to go buy her back. And so there's this beautiful imagery of a slave being redeemed out of slavery and becoming a bride. You start to maybe see this sermon illustration coming into form. And Paul then is applying Hosea's words, which were originally written to the northern tribe of Israel, and he applies it to the Gentiles. Look back at Romans 9, verse 24. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not my beloved, I will call beloved. And this is really important for us to understand if we're going to believe what Paul says in Romans ten twelve that he says there's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all. What Paul is doing here is he is taking language that was used of those chosen by God under the old covenant, and he's applying it to new covenant believers. Other writers of the New Testament do this as well. Peter does this as well. Those who are not my people are now my people. He's encompassing the Gentiles into that as well. And so you must see how God is revealing who these vessels of mercy are. And we're seeing it, we're, see, we're getting a bigger and bigger picture of it as history has gone on, as, as we read our Bibles. It's a bigger and bigger picture. I mean, just think about this, this terminology, son of God or sons of God, that, that, that is something that was originally, it, the nation of Israel was the first born son of God that God called his son. But then we see Jesus come, the true and better Israelite, the, the faithful and obedient Israelite, and now he's called the son of God. And now through faith in Christ, what now we see? Gentiles are now called sons of God. 
right? You see this picture, this, this, this applying of some old covenant language to new covenant believers. But God's, uh, Paul's also the specific to clarify, God's not just calling from the Gentiles. He's not abandoned the Jews. Look, then he addresses in, in Romans 9, he addresses the Jews. Then in verse 27, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. You see, church, if God had not intervened and chosen to set his covenantal redeeming love and glorious mercy on his people, if he had not chosen to do that, there would be no hope for vessels of mercy to continue on. Isaiah prophesied that if God had not chosen a remnant, there wouldn't be anyone left that worships the true God. But thanks be to God that he is causing people to be born again. He is leaving offspring on his earth. Just like the, uh, John says in John 1.13, right? We who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. How do we know that the righteousness of God is going to go out to all people? How do we know that the kingdom of God is going to continue to grow like a mustard seed? Is our hope in the will and exertion of mankind? Or is it in a God who's freer than his creation, who can change hearts, who can cause a new, the new birth, who can create everything ex nihilo and it obeys? who loves to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, whom he has called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. This should give us great hope, church. This should give us a great optimistic expectation of what's to come, that God is the creator, that he has the authority over his creation, and he can still change hearts. God's still in that business of causing people to be born again and changing hearts. He's still in the business of calling a people who are not his people, now his people. And those who had not received mercy, now they have received mercy. And he can still call a people to himself from the Gentiles and from the Jews. And because of that, this means something glorious. This means that no human being is beyond hope through faith in Christ. I mean, think to yourself about who would maybe be the most unlikely convert to Christ in your life. Probably have one or two you can think of that would just completely catch you off guard if they came to Christ. Can God not do for them what he has done for you? But you ask this question, you ask, well, how do I know that God's preparing them for? How do I know who God is preparing for mercy and who he is preparing for destruction? And listen, when we start getting into that realm, I think we do need to be careful to not try to sit ourselves in the seat of God.
Yes, I believe God knows and has prepared the end, but he also knows and has prepared the means to that end. How is God preparing people for mercy? It's through the prayers of his people. You got a burdened heart for someone this morning? You better pray about it. Man, God's God's probably preparing them for mercy. Praise God for that. Paul's about to compel us in chapter 10 that we as creation need to not be caught up in critiquing the job description and responsibilities of God. We need to be about the means that God has ordained to work towards his ends. He's about to tell us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And how will they call on him if they haven't believed? And how are they going to believe if they haven't heard? And how are they going to hear without someone preaching? I mean, if God has put someone on the heart of one of his children who possesses the Holy Spirit and can share with them the gospel, I've got to believe that God is preparing them for mercy. He's preparing you to be an instrument of mercy. So I'm excited to get to Romans 10 and love to talk about God's job responsibilities, but we've got some as well that we need to be much more about. And as we get about it, as we get about praying and evangelizing and discipling and doing what God has called us to do, we do it with this great hope and courage, knowing that it's ultimately not dependent upon our human will and exertion, but on God who has mercy. But before we get to Romans 10, we do have to allow Romans 9 to humble us and fill us with great hope. Who are you? We are creation. And through faith in Christ, we have become vessels of mercy. People who had once not received mercy, who now have received mercy. People who once were not God's people are now God's people. What a treasure we have, church, to be vessels of mercy. Who is he? He is God. He's the creator. He has the authority and right to govern his creation as he sees best. No one can thwart his ultimate sovereign plans and purposes. And he has chosen to show mercy to a great multitude of people. And even his wrath is in the service of his mercy. And it's when his mercy is against the backdrop of judgment that we come to see what a treasure it is. Last question, who are we? We are a people who should be humbled and hopeful because God's mercy does not depend upon our works, but on him who calls. So who are we? We are a humbled and hopeful people because God's mercy does not depend upon our works, but on him who calls. Let's pray.